Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast with a series called Promises and Power. And this series focuses on Israel capturing the promised land guided by a new leader. His name is Joshua. Today's episode is titled Preparation for Conflict. Senior Pastor Perry Duggar will share how Israelites in Joshua chapter 5 prepared for conflict in Canaan. This message will reveal how you should prepare for the opposition you encounter. Here's today's message. What burdens do you need to lay down? God can hold them up. Sometimes we can be weighed down, can't we? We think we're carrying them ourselves. So we move again to our series on Joshua entering the promised land. He just entered it. And the series is entitled Promise and Power. Do you remember what it means? Promises and power. We trust in the promises of God, he provides the power to fulfill his plans. I might start putting that up in the beginning because we need to know that line, don't we? The title to today's message is Preparation for Conflict. Some of you may say, well, I'm not fighting anything. I'm not battling. Well, It may be a spiritual battle. It might be an emotional one. It could be a physical one. It could be one with other people. It could be one within ourselves. It could be one within our family. So whatever we learn in these lessons does have an application for us. But you have to let the Spirit help you see yourself in the story. You may not be attacking the city of Jericho, but there is some obstacle in front of you that God's called you. Now, God gave the promised land to his people, the descendants of Abraham. But, you know, God can be frustrating because they had to engage in battle with the people living there to take possession of it. Psalms 105, 8 through 11. And so now they've crossed the Jordan River They built a memorial, we looked at that. So now it's time to prepare for engaging in combat. And as I said, like them, you may be facing a confrontation of a different nature, but you still have to get ready, just as they did. The theme for this message that I've taken from Joshua chapter five, verse 14 will be, reviewing chapter five today, is Joshua saying, what do you want your servant to do? Any of you asking God that today? I don't know how to prepare for this. So we begin at Joshua chapter five in verse one on page 182 in this Bible available here. When all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings who lived along the Mediterranean coast. Now, it mentions those two kings, not because it, was ex- it exclusively applied to them, but they were the kings of the two largest nations or peoples in the promised land. So those two kings actually represent all of the others. So when they heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan River, so the people of Israel could cross, they lost heart and were paralyzed with fear because of them. 
the contemporary English version says lost courage and the will to fight. Now that work of God allowed God's people to make preparation for conflict. The first step in preparing for conflict was to renew their relationship with God. Verse 2. At that time, and this is after crossing the river, the Lord told Joshua, make flint knives. Now, you may be uh, familiar with that quartz. It's a quartz, and they made blades from this fine-grained, very hard quartz to use in ritual practices and circumcise this second-generation of Israelites. So they didn't want to use just a natural iron blade um, because it was human made. And so this quartz blade, because it was found in nature, seems to communicate an aura of purity. In fact, you'll see later in Joshua in chapter eight that they were instructed not to use metal tools to construct the altar. And you also find that in Exodus 20, also in Deuteronomy 27. So Joshua made flint knives that, and circumcised the entire male population of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, we're familiar with circumcision, but typically circumcision is performed on males eight days old. And circumcision was given to Abraham initially as a reminder of God's promise, God's covenant with Israel, Genesis chapter 17. Now in, chapter, in verse four, we continue, Joshua had to circumcise them because all the men who were old enough to fight in the battle when they left Egypt had died in the wilderness. Those who left Egypt had all been circumcised, but none of those born after the Exodus during the years in the wilderness had been circumcised. The Israelites had traveled in the wilderness for 40 years until all the men who were old enough to fight in battle when they left Egypt had died, for they had disobeyed the Lord. Now, you remember this story 38 years before, at a place called Kadesh Barnea, there was one scout chosen from each tribe. They went into the promised land across the Jordan River. So there were places, understand, there were places to cross the Jordan River. And they searched over the land and, and they, they saw it and they, they said it, it's a fertile land. They brought back some of the fruit that they found some of the produce that they saw there. But they were also scared of the people. They said, the people are like giants and we're like grasshoppers. So 10 of the spies said, we can't be successful there. They'll kill us. And two said, no, we can do this. But because of the lack of faith and the people started getting scared and the people started rebelling and resisting and so God said that every person 20 years old and older 
would die in the wilderness. And so they remained in the wilderness for 38 more years. Remember, only two did not die. Now, who were those? Joshua and Caleb. So you think, boy, God's hard. But in one sense, God was merciful as well. He let them live 38 more years, but they didn't move far. I mean, they could have traveled all the way through the wilderness. It was, it was over 500 miles, but they could have done it in less than two months. So God kept them in the wilderness for 38 more years but they all died out except for Joshua and Caleb. And the Lord had vowed that he would not let them enter the land he had sworn to give, a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's part of the covenant promise that's found first in Genesis 12, one through three. So Joshua circumcised their sons, those who had grown up to take their father's places for they had not been circumcised on the way to the promised land. Circumcision was a sign of membership in the covenant community. As I said, given by God first to Abraham, but to be passed through down to his descendants. Genesis 17 tells about it. But it meant that they and specifically their bodies belonged to God. And they were an, under an obligation to obey him and never to use their lives or their bodies in sinful ways. The mark of the covenant reminded Jews that they were a special people, a separated people. They were different from all the other peoples in the world. They were a holy nation, but one who must maintain purity in their lives, in their culture, through their worship. Before engaging in battle for the promised land, the new generation needed to renew their covenant relationship with the Lord because they would need to rely on God for victory in combat. So they reconnected with him. They would also need a renewed relationship with God when they entered this promised land because it was a pagan land. It was a land full of idolatry and immoral religious practices. And these people who inhabited it would seek to influence God's people their way. Any of that happened to you? This culture is influencing young Christians to not see the world biblically. You know, we, th we think the internet is so wonderful. I think I'd love for it to just break for a, about 10 years. TV, all of it. Circumcision, though an outward procedure, did not change a person's relationship with God. It symbolized it but it did not and it could not cause a spiritual change within. What happened though is the Jews came to think as long as they were circumcised, 
they were right with God as his covenant people. So they really could live however they wanted. You see any similarities today? It is similar. Now y'all listen clearly. Unstop your ears when you hear this. It is similar to people today who think or feel they have been saved and are going to heaven because they've been baptized, confirmed, and participate regularly in communion in some denominations. Outward procedures cannot change the inner spiritual self. Now I want y'all to think about that, pray about that. How many of us are relying on something outward we have done or do? In our circles, it's more, well, I walk the aisle, I raise my hand at camp, I was baptized in the lake or I was immersed, you know, in the church or I was sprinkled as a child. All of those things are good. Everybody heard that, right? They're all good if they symbolize truth. They cannot produce spiritual life. When we baptize, I always tell people that they, they may have an unusual experience with God during their baptism. They may feel the spirit. Not everyone does. Some do. A spirit of even some exhilaration. But it's symbolic. The water doesn't wash away sin. It symbolizes that your sin's been washed away. Galatians 6, 15. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or baptized or not. What counts is whether we've been transformed into a new creation. Verse 8. After all the males had been circumcised, they rested in the camp until they were healed. They are describing an awful experience with just a few words, aren't they? Time was needed to recover from such a painful wound. But now I just told you that they crossed the Jordan River built a memorial, and they're facing battle. Who thinks this is a surprising strategy to prepare for battle? Anybody? Because this surgery disabled these men. So none of them could fight well, and their enemies were eight miles away in Jericho. After demonstrating his power, stopping the flow of the Jordan River, God is testing the faith of his people by requiring all of them to be circumcised. But here's what he did. He made all of them vulnerable to attack. Attack. 
You may say, well, that's where I am. I'm wondering where, where is God? I'm, I'm, I'm helpless. I'm vulnerable. He wanted them to understand they were utterly dependent on him for protection. Now, God has helped them because as I read in verse 1, he has paralyzed them with fear. But they don't know that. We know it reading the text. They don't know that. The safest place to be is in the will of God. Following his plan, pursuing his purpose, even in a very threatening situation. He was helping. They didn't know it. He, was, he had taken the Canaanites' courage and will to fight. Otherwise, this would have been the perfect time to attack, wouldn't it? And you know that battle that you're facing? God may have already disabled your opponent. Now, I'm, I'm talking to myself. Y'all don't even have to be here. As we struggle to, to get something to happen for our grandchild, God may already be winning this battle. It's not up to you because you know what? You can't win it anyway. Verse nine. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal which sounds like the Hebrew word for roll. Now, the shame of slavery in Egypt um, was removed, and there's a lot of debate about exactly what does this mean. So you may, you may have an idea. I'll give you what I think it means, but your idea may be just as good. I think that it means that these people, and I want you to look at it, these are God's chosen people and what have they been doing for 400 years? Enslaved. Enslaved for 400 years. And then, because of their fear, they weren't allowed in the promised land for 38 more years. Some say it was 430 years total, but the numbers are sometimes rounded off. But you can look at numbers 13 and 14. But in any event... What I think is happening is these, are, these people are blessed by God. They're chosen by him. They're a holy nation. They're a royal priesthood. And they're enslaved. You ever feel enslaved? And so it feels like shame. How could I be enslaved and belong to God? And so here, God is rolling away this shame and preparing them for victory in the promised land. So that challenge that's facing you, you have to have it in mind. Have you started by renewing your relationship with God? 
You know, sometimes when we're angry about something or discouraged or afraid or just anxious, we don't step first toward God, do we? Some of us just go somewhere and hide. Some of us run away. Some of us get mad and fight. We have any of those in here? I'm not saying it's a good thing. I tend to look for something to swing, but I don't, but that's not wise. I don't, I've been circumcised once. Don't do it again, please. (laughs) But God wants us to start, erase that image. I'm sorry for saying that. (laughs) Um, God wants us to start by renewing our intimacy with him. Another part of preparation for conflict is to remember God's faithfulness. Verse 10. While the Israelites were camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the first month. The laws concerning Passover, understand, required the participants to be circumcised. Now, you remember what happened at Passover. Sometimes we think of Passover, of course, when Jesus had the, um, the dinner in the upstairs in the upper room on the night he was arrested. But they were symbolizing and remembering the Passover And the Passover is actually that they were told to kill a male animal, a spotless and unblemished sheep or goat, and to take the sacrifice and smear or dab blood on the doorpost, the side post and the top post of their homes. And it was right before the final plague, the plague of death struck in Egypt. And in that plague, the firstborn sons and the firstborn male animals of every household in Egypt was killed. Every household that didn't have blood on the doorpost would lose the firstborn male child and male animal. Exodus chapter 12. After those deaths, Pharaoh ordered the Israelites out of the land. Exodus 12, 30 through 36. Now, we remember Passover in the Lord's Supper. If you didn't receive the elements, raise your hand and and they'll be brought to you. Jesus is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says. And John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walk up, said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. Peter informed us that a ransom was paid for our lives with the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God in 1 Peter 1. Our sinless Savior died for our sins. Had he had his own, he couldn't have died in our place, could he? So his blood was painted symbolically on our lives, on our hearts. 
So we escape judgment. We escape death. We escape eternal separation from God. The death angel passes over our lives. And as the first Passover marked the Hebrews' release from Egyptian slavery, our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus marks our release from slavery to sin, Romans 8. And as the first Passover was held to be a remembrance, it was an annual feast. And so that's why Jews, the, 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 the pivotal point in, in Jewish faith is the exodus. And so they have the Passover as an annual feast. And so as believers, we memorialize the Lord's death during that Passover week when we observe the Lord's Supper. So take your elements and we'll just interrupt, pause here for a moment as we consider this. Luke 22, if you want to turn there, page 847, beginning at verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. And then drop to 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then we'll skip 17 and 18. It speaks of taking another cup of wine. There actually were four cups of wine during the meal. He took some bread. You take yours, open your bag. He gave thanks to God for it. He broke it into pieces. And then he gave it to the disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And they ate. After supper, he took another cup of wine. This is the fourth cup. This is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people. It was called in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. So open your cups. And as we remember God's faithfulness, as we remember his grace on our lives, we drink. So we enacted our modern day equivalent of this Passover meal, one that they engaged in 
before entering battle. Back to verse 11. The very next day, they began to eat unleavened bread. They had no leaven. And roasted grain harvested from the land. No manna. And you remember the manna was the the bread that appeared in the morning, almost with the dew. And they would gather it six days a week, not on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, they would gather two days, two days worth on Friday. They wouldn't gather on the Sabbath. And God provided that for them for 40 years in the wilderness. But it stopped. It appeared on the day they first ate from the crops of the land and it was never seen again. So none appeared that day. No man appeared the day they entered the land and it was never appeared again. From that time on, the Israelites ate from the crops of Canaan. Food was plentiful. This extraordinary means of provision from God was temporary. Now, 40 years is not real temporary, if it doesn't seem to be. But you see, now they would experience another miracle. But it's the miracle of regular harvests in the land of milk and honey. See, sometimes we overlook the miracle of crops. How does a seed turn into such a variety of vegetables of all different colors and tastes? Leanne and I tried some gardening in our backyard. I'm sure our neighbors loved it. (laughs) It didn't go all that well. We had these raised beds, but even so, I mean, how did this, I mean, how do you get a tomato and then a cucumber and then a pepper and then, that's the miracle of God's provision. And the animals that were given for food. We live in a a strange day, don't we, where animals have more protection than unborn infants. But this was a land it was called the land of milk and honey. When we were in Israel, our guide, uh, Ave or Abraham, Ben Yosef, Abraham, son of Joseph, said that this, was, this land of milk and honey was sheep milk and date honey. And it makes perfect sense if you have any familiarity with Israel. But the point is that God will provide all of your needs when you can't obtain them through your efforts. And so it seems that God fills the gaps, but I don't see that God excuses us from any efforts. Do you? Look at Philippians 4. And this same God who takes care of me, Paul writing, will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us 
in Christ Jesus. Where are you right now in your attitude towards God? Have you forgotten the past faithfulness because the present problems are just filling your mind and heart and life? I think we'll be miserable and we'll be discouraged and we can all be susceptible to that. But we have to reflect back on the faithfulness of God as we prepare to do battle with present problems. Another important part of preparation for conflict is to realign with God's purpose. Verse 13. When Joshua was near the town of Jericho, what do you think he was doing? We have any military guys here? He was scouting, yeah, the battlements. He was seeing how prepared they were. What did the fortifications look like? Could he tell where they had armed the city? What were the strong points? Where were the weak points? He was scouting the city for battle. He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, are you friend or foe? I'm assuming Joshua must be carrying a sword as well. But look at this answer. Neither one, he replied. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. He knew he was encountering someone divine. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you're, you're standing is holy. Do you have any holy places in your home, in your yard? See, a holy place is any place God has revealed himself personally to you. That might be a place you ought to memorialize. And Joshua did as he was told. Now, some theologians think that this commander is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, who knows what that's called? That boy, you'll get a big star. Christophany is right. Someone give him a prize. It is a Christophany. And there are others that, again, this is, this is a debate. Some believe that every time the scripture says the, the angel of the Lord, it's a reference to Jesus before Jesus' human appearance. There are others they talk about, like perhaps it was Jesus that Jacob wrestled with at Peniel who dislocated his hip, by the way. Genesis 32. And maybe Jesus was the fourth man walking in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Certainly God appeared numerous times to Abraham and to Noah and to Moses. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Now that's not called a Christophany, that's called a what? Theophany. Theophany. 
what have you been reading? (laughs) That's a theophany, yes. The army of the Lord was an angelic host. And they always won. The angelic host assured victory for Israel if they were obedient. This commander's presence was a sign that God was the real military leader of Israel, not Joshua. It was time for Joshua, if he had had any growing pride about being able to tell people what to do, it's broken as he falls on his face. The events of this passage are evidence that the battle is the Lord's. Your battle is the Lord's. My battle is the Lord's. We are not capable in many instances of winning it. He's always capable. And he will accomplish the conquest. But we must be sure that we are on his side, not that he's on ours. Proverbs 19, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. The conflict that you're involved in or about to enter, are you sure that you're standing with Christ and you haven't taken up your own issue, your own ambition, your own goal. Because God's promises are only empowered when we're fulfilling what? His plans, his plans. Care volunteers will be here at the front and in the care connection room across the concourse. Let me remind you, next Sunday is the first Sunday in February. So I've been, I keep encouraging you to join us in prayer at 815. And those of you that it's inconvenient for, I said, I've requested just try to do it one Sunday a month. So we'll be gathered right here in the auditorium at 815. Let's pray. Father, I pray that whatever battle we're engaged in or considering that we're standing with you, not pursuing our own issues, our own ambitions. We thank you that you go before us and that the battle is yours. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Sunday Message Podcast at Brookwood Church. Question for you. What spiritual practices best prepare your heart to accomplish the work God is giving you? Spend time this week renewing your intimacy with God. Here's our memory verse. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 19. On next week's episode, we'll continue the series in Joshua, Promises and Power, to prepare, read Joshua chapter 6. 
You can watch an episode of this week's message, listen to worship, or even search the message archives. Visit brookwoodchurch.org slash media or download the Brookwood Church app. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the Promises and Power series. Thanks for listening and have a great week.